0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to return to John chapter 20. We're going to begin where we left off last week in verse 19. Verse 19. And we're going to read through verse 23, although I, we'll, we'll see if we make it that far this morning. Chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you will hold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, O Father, for uh, the comfort your word gives to us, Lord. And we ask, O Father, especially as we come to this particular a group of verses, that you would bless us and open your word, O oh, Father, to our hearts this morning, Lord, as we seek to understand your word and as we seek to apply it uh, to our lives, Lord, we look to you for these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Uh, this morning, we have a group of verses, as I implied in, in my prayer, that that are very mysterious. You know, they use uh, the words of J.C. Ryle uh, there are things in this passage that are hard to understand. Uh, and I think that there are some mysteries here that we really, at the end of the day, are going to have to wait on, uh, as Spurgeon used to say, a little more light uh, in order to go really much further than what I'm going to attempt to do this morning. Uh, I I have no desire to make dogmatic statements about things that, uh, the, that we can't make dogmatic statements about, but I, I do want to try to at least show... Show a little bit of light on some of these verses. Too often, these verses are skipped. You know, it's uh, sometimes you'll be sitting and listening to a sermon, and you'll notice a verse like this, and you'll think, "Well, I can't wait till the pastor gets to this verse," and then he skips it. I don't know if anyone's had that experience or not. I don't want to do that to you. Uh, or, or you're looking at a study Bible or something, and you, you you get hung up on something, you look down only to discover that uh, there's complete silence on that particular verse. Uh, what's up with that? That's what we bought the study Bible for, right? Um, I, we're not going to do that, okay? But as a consequence, this morning's mess is going to be a little different than they normally are. But I, um, I trust it will still be uh, edifying for us. And our goal is to get to verse 23. I'm not sure we'll get past verse 19, but we're going to do our best, okay? Now, the, 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 having said that, there's a number of things here that are plenty clear. It's not all, uh, it's not all shrouded in, in in mystery. But if you look at the first lines there, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, uh, th- this is, you know, this is going to sound a lot like a review of last week. If you take a look at verse one of chapter 20, there you see on the first day of the week, uh, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb early while it's still dark. And last week we drew the connection. That this language of first day uh, really uh, takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, where we have the days of creation. You know, there, there, God spoke light into existence, for example, and then there was light uh, the first day. Then you have the second day, third day, um, with the pinnacle of creation falling on the sixth day with the creation of humanity. And then when you turn to chapter 2, you have uh, the seventh day God rested from his uh, creative activity, if you will. And you get the idea of the uh, Sabbath rest, if you will. And when this is aligned with our calendar, of course, the Sabbath falls on Saturday. And when we bring this understanding to John chapter 20, we understand that Jesus is crucified on the day of preparation. What day is that? That's the day of preparation for the Sabbath, In other words, that's the day before the Sabbath. Still, in other words, yet, it's Friday. And thus we have Good Friday. We talked about that. Last week, so Jesus is crucified on a Friday. He's he dies on Friday. He is buried on Friday, and then the first day of the week, uh, the women come to the tomb. They make the discovery that the tomb is empty. They run off to Peter and presumably John, who come back to the tomb and they see that it is so that the body uh, of Jesus is missing. And uh, this brings us back to verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. But I want to draw your attention to the fact that John is emphasizing that. I mean, he could have just as easily said, on the evening. He could have said that evening. And when the Holy Spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit is not like preachers. You know, preachers ramble on. Um, The Holy Spirit, when he inspires the biblical author, he does so with a marvelous succinctness. Have you ever noticed how much can be said with just a few words in Scripture? Isn't it amazing? So when we come to verses like this, we should know that this is being emphasized. It's the first day. In other words, it's evening of that day. What day? So that there's no confusion, it's the first day of the week. And last week we made application of that. Why are we meeting on Sunday morning? And, you know, I I, I brought that to your attention. We meet on Sunday morning. We can answer it with a one-word answer, right? Resurrection. Every worship service should properly be, before it's anything else, a celebration of the resurrection, right? It's on the first day. It's on Sunday that Jesus rose. And here we see that this is the day that God has sovereignly ordained uh, for Jesus to be raised from that grave and for Jesus to begin making appearances. So we're told that it is on the first day of the week. We are told that the door's being locked where the disciples were. Now, there's conjecture that they're back in the upper room. I don't think we... Again, we don't want to be dogmatic about that, but there's conjecture. They're back in the upper room. And we've been studying through John's gospel for weeks and weeks and weeks, the the discourse that Jesus... You know, the words that Jesus shares with His uh, disciples in the upper room. So they could possibly be back in the upper room. But what we know for sure is the doors are locked because they're afraid. And notice the text says, for fear of the Jews. Now, we want to be really clear here that what's really in view is the Jewish leadership. And I don't want to give the impression that, you know, they're, they're afraid of every Israelite in, in, in the Holy Land. Um, but if, put, let's try to put ourselves in the place of the disciples. We saw what just happened to, to Jesus. And you could probably surmise, if they're capable of doing this to Jesus, what could they do to us? So, and and this is an important point that we need to hold on to. Here they are, they're behind locked doors in fear of the Jewish leadership. Does that make sense? It's something we're going to need to hold on to as we go through the rest of chapter 20. And another important point that needs to be uh, kept in mind here, and this is important for interpreting this passage is notice that it says the disciples were there. Okay, who was there? Is this limited to the, we'll say, 10 disciples who would become apostles? And someone would say, why do you say 10? I thought there were 12. Well, Judas Iscariot has already betrayed Jesus and disbanded from the group. That takes us down to 11. And we know that Thomas is not with them, right? That takes us down to 10. So is it the 10 that's in the room? Or are there others in the room? Now, let me throw another variable in here. Some of you will be familiar with Luke chapter 24 and the story of, of uh, the two disciples on their way to Emmaus. If you don't know the story this afternoon, if you get time, open up your Bible and read it. It's an it's a absolutely gripping story of the two disciples walking the seven-mile walk from Jerusalem out to Emmaus, and a stranger comes up behind them and walks with them all the way, and it's Jesus, and they're not even aware of it. Now, as soon as Jesus reveals himself to them while they're eating, what do they do? They turn right back around and they go back to the disciples in Jerusalem. And presumably, they're present. They may be present. Again, we're not sure. You know, I don't want to be dogmatic about it, but I think we've got good reason to, be there, to believe that they are present. And if that's the case, then perhaps there are other disciples there besides those who would later be called Apostles. Now, that's going to become important as we go along. So let's just hold that thought in our minds, if you will. So what we do know is they're behind locked doors and Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, one of the things I want to I talk about this morning, and this is something where if you get any decent commentary on John's gospel, you're going to find a lot of ink spilled on this, is, okay, how did Jesus end up in this room? And I see some of you already looking like, okay, what, what is the answer? Well, there's been, a, there's been a lot of conjecture on this Uh, Some some we can just dismiss right away. Some have said Jesus was hiding in the room and almost like a man out of a cake at some kind of birthday party, he just appears, you know. Uh, I'm glad you're all laughing. Um, uh, You know, that hardly warrants any consideration. Uh, But there's others where Jesus descends down from the roof, like the paralytic, You know how they they lower the paralytic down before Jesus uh, through the roof tiles? There's others that Jesus comes through a window. Uh, There are others that um, say that, um, you know, Jesus sneaks in with the two disciples that are coming back from uh, Emmaus. Now, let's think about that. If you wanted to sneak into a room, would it be easy to sneak with two people? I mean, could you... (laughs) I mean, you, you read this stuff and you scratch your head. How do you sneak? You, can, you, you might be able to conceal yourself in a large crowd of people, but how do you conceal yourself in two people going through a doorway? Um, that's highly unlikely. Um, now, we can dismiss all of those, but we're still before us the question. The doors are locked. Jesus ends up in the room. How does this happen? There are others that say that the doors just open. You know, like the angel causes the gates to open uh, when the angel rescues Peter and acts, that the doors open and Jesus comes through. However, the text is silent on that. That would be complete conjecture. Um, and all of this is leading to uh, there, there are a lot of folks, there are a lot of uh, really responsible uh, Bible interpreters uh, that say that Jesus literally passes through the walls. And... Um, And unfortunately, some of the things that become associated with that is it is said that Jesus' glorified body begins to take on characteristics of the divine nature. Now, this gets into a little theology. I'm going to watch, everybody. I know some of you are really wanting to hear the rest of this, and I know some of us may not want to hear the rest of this, so I'm going to to try to walk that balance here. But um, first of all, we need to understand about the dual nature of Christ. It's really important that we understand two things about Jesus. One is that he is fully God. Jesus is fully God. He is very God of very God. And two, he is also fully human. Now, in the early church, there were a lot of heresies floating around, which caused the church to have to write down and draft some definitions, if you will, concerning the person of Christ. And I'm using the word definition because at one council, one early church council, there was a, a, a document that was drafted known as the definitions of Chalcedon or the symbols of Chalcedon. Some of you will be familiar with the uh, uh, the uh, council of Chalcedon. And in that council, one, there was numerous things said about Christ himself, and there's one thing that is so pertinent to our consideration here, is it is said that Jesus is without confusion. Now, what is meant by that? Does that mean that Jesus is never confused? Mentally, he's never confused? No, that's not what they're talking about. What they're talking about is that the humanity of Jesus is never lost in his divinity, and the divinity of Jesus is never lost in his humanity. And someone say, Well, why is that so important? I'll tell you how important it is. Our salvation rests on this. Someone say, How come? Or as the boy like to say, how comes it? How comes it? Because a human offering has been offered on the cross. A human offering has to be offered on the cross. A perfect human human being, must be crucified, if you will, in order to atone for our sins. Not a a human being that's lost in divinity, not humanity lost in divinity, nor uh, nor divinity lost in humanity, if you will. The scriptures are very clear that Jesus is fully man. Jesus is fully uh, divine. He is one person. It's about as far as we can go with that. You you can think about that on this afternoon. If your mind starts to hurt a little bit, you're thinking correctly. It's really hard for us to get our minds and, and I've said it many times. You can go take a seminary course on the on Christology or or on the Trinity, if you will, and it can be explained in about two hours. And someone said, What do you do with the rest of 38 hours? Well, that's the whole thing can be explained in about two hours, and that's about as far as we can go. Jesus is fully God. He's fully human. There is no confusion. So I think we need to be very cautious when we talk about the, the terms of Jesus' human nature, even his post-resurrection nature. It's not being lost in in divinity. Um, we need to be careful when we start talking about the, divine, the human nature taking on characteristics of the divine. There's a lot that we don't know about the post-resurrection glorified body of Christ. But one thing we do know is Jesus occupies space in terms of his body. I'm leaning on this structure right here. Uh, this structure occupies space. If you look at Luke 24 with me, Jesus wants us to understand this. And if you look at Luke 24 and you look at verse 36, and I take this as Luke's parallel to the passage that we're studying in John. Here the disciples are. They're talking about these things, and Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace, be, or, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Now, there was an ism floating around. I won't go into a lot of it. I mean, there's always an ism floating around, isn't there? Um, And there was an ism floating around. And the ism, without using a lot of technical terms, the ism basically said that Jesus wasn't human. He just seemed to be human. And that, of course, had to be put down. And we know that John himself in his first letter is indeed dealing with that. Uh, He's certainly dealing with that. And, of course, even here we see Jesus doesn't just seem seem to be uh, human. He doesn't doesn't just appear to be human. Jesus invites them, listen, touch me. See, a a spirit does not have flesh and bones. He says, here, touch me. So we see that the post-resurrection Jesus, in terms of his body, takes up space. And he dwells somewhere, doesn't he? Have you ever thought about that? We need to think about that. It's important that we think about that. When we pray, we pray to the Father through Christ. Christ exists somewhere. Now, we could ask ourselves, where is that somewhere that he exists? Now, I think most of us would say, well, he exists in heaven. Okay, where's that? You know, we're kind of asking the question that three-year-olds are famous for, the why question, but where is heaven? Have we thought about where is heaven? Jesus is spatially located somewhere is the point I'm trying to make. And we would say that place is in heaven. But let's suppose we think of that heaven as a realm. We know that there are beings that that step out of the heavenly realm and into what we might call the earthly realm. We know that from Scripture. Uh, In fact, uh, the author to the letter of Hebrews tells us that some people have entertained angels unawares, right? Where did these angels come from? They stepped out of the realm of heaven into this realm. And we can ask this question, what is Jesus doing from the time between his resurrection and his ascension. Have you ever thought about that? That's approximately a 40-day period of time after Jesus is raised. Where does he go? What does he do? I mean, is he like hanging out in the woods somewhere so no one will see him? Have you ever thought about that? Where does he go? What does he do? Now, One possibility, and we need to hold this out as a possibility. Jesus walks with two of his closest disciples for seven miles, and they don't recognize him, right? Jesus speaks with Mary Magdalene, and she thinks he's the gardener. So... In terms of his post-resurrection body, he, he, we see that at times he conceals himself and they don't recognize him. So he could be just mingling with the crowds. He could be mingling uh, he, in our own realm. He could be mingling uh, unnoticed for those 40 days. He could be doing that quite easily. But I want to show you something that's quite peculiar about verse 17. If you look back in verse sixteen, Jesus reveals he you know he reveals himself to Mary. We looked at this last week. Jesus says to her, "Mary," and by calling her out her name, she immediately recognizes Jesus. Jesus reveals himself to her, and she turns to him and says in Aramaic, "Rabbi," and she begins to cling to him. And he says to her, do not claim to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But I go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now I want to point your attention to the two different tenses of the word ascend. He says, I have not yet ascended, but go tell the brothers, I am ascending. That's so peculiar, isn't it? It's a peculiar tense, change of tense there. I am ascending. Could it be that preparations are being made in heaven for Jesus' ascension? Uh, Again, this is conjecture on my part. You know, I've always told you that Whenever I'm offering an opinion on Scripture, I want you to know it's my opinion. and You can take my opinion. You can take it and feel free in the hallway to say, you know, thanks, Rick, but no thanks. That's fine. That don't offend me at all. When the things are clear in Scripture, that's a different matter, but we're not on one of those things. I want us to understand them, and we shouldn't be dogmatic about things that aren't clear. You know, I had a conversation with a friend just a couple of days ago, and I wanted to clear something. With this friend, I said, You know, there's things in scripture that are clear, and thank goodness that a lot of it is clear. And one of the things that's clear is the way of salvation. That's clear. How to, uh, the, the way God reveals himself to us, and all the many qualities that God has, and the way he reveals himself to us. That's clear how to live a godly life that's pleasing to him, how to be prepared for heaven, be prepared for the new heavens and the earth, these things are clear. But what I said to my friend was, there are things in Scripture that are not clear. Sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, there's no point studying the Scriptures because, yeah, you know, everyone has their own interpretation and there's no point. You've all heard that before, right? That's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. But there are verses in Scripture where really good Bible expositors come down in different places. And I wanted my friend to know that. And I wanted my friend to know that this doesn't, you know, our salvation is not predicated on a riddle that we can't figure out. That's the point I want to make here. I want everyone to understand that. The way of salvation is very clear. But, however, what we have here is is not so clear. And perhaps... Jesus is stepping out of heaven. Perhaps he's stepping from our realm into the heavenly realm and from the heavenly realm into our realm. Perhaps that's a possibility. I'm throwing that out as a possibility. Now, if that is the possibility, how does Jesus get into this room? Does he walk through the walls? Uh, perhaps, he, perhaps he literally steps out of the heavenly realm and into that room. I mean, why would he have to step out of the heavenly realm and onto the street? I mean, presuming it's the upper room, then come up the steps and then pass through a locked door or pass through a wall. Why couldn't he just appear in the room? Do you follow me? It's a mystery. But we know that the Holy Spirit can transport people. Uh, you know, think of Philip in Acts chapter eight, the very end of Acts chapter eight. Philip is ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then the spirit carries him off, and he finds himself in a Zotos. You know that story if you don't. There's, you can add Acts 8 to Luke 24, and you can read about that story. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure how Jesus gets in this room. I don't know, but we want to be really careful mixing the divine nature of Jesus with the human nature of Jesus. Do you follow me? Because once we start doing that, it finds its way in our doctrine of the sacraments and it can find its way in a lot of other stuff, and we can fall off the edge really fast. And I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there because we need to be very cautious. And sometimes when you quote, like, the Council of Chalcedon, you start quoting all of these, um, you know, these creeds from antiquity, people say, we don't need all that stuff. All that stuff just, what do you need all that stuff for? Boy, we need to be really cautious there. Because a church that forgets about the wisdom of its forefathers is a church that's on its way to ruin. I promise you that's the case. This isn't my opinion. Do the history. Look. Think about it. When children don't listen to the wisdom of their parents, what happens? What happens when we have we all listened to our parents? Raise your hand if you always listen to your parents. I don't see any hands. Usually it doesn't work out well, does it? Assuming that you've this the assumption is, I know, the assumption is that we've had godly parents. That hasn't always been the case, you know. That's the assumption is we've had wise parents. But, but going beyond that, when we don't listen to the wisdom of our forefathers and we think we know more than our forefathers knew and we think we can do it better, you know, that's, a, that's not a mark of wisdom. That's not a mark of maturity. And we live and we, we move in a society that is really immature, in the respect that, it's so quick to throw out any vestiges of tradition, any vestiges of wisdom that could have gone before us, and we're going to pay the penalty for that. We already are paying the penalty for that. So we want to look, and I could say biblically speaking, Ephesians 4.11 should give us direction in this because God has given us pastors and teachers to equip us, hasn't he? And these old pastors and teachers have given us their writings to keep us from falling off the, off the edge. So what I, I don't know how Jesus gets in this room. I just want to sound some caution about a human body just walking through walls. The text does not tell us that he walked through the walls. We've got to be mindful. That's conjecture. How he gets in the room, I, I, I think we're going to have to wait for more light on that. But what we do know for sure is he gets in the room, and, uh, and he says these words at the end of verse 19, Peace be with you. Let me develop that, and I'll call it it a day. What does Jesus mean by peace be with you? You'll notice that he repeats it in verse 21, and he repeats it again in verse 26. Okay, again, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste words. Here we see a a repetition. What does Jesus mean by peace be with you? Well, this is a greeting, For sure. Sometimes we could say, okay, what do you mean by peace? I mean, we don't really do that much in our culture, but the Greek word that's used here for peace, a reines, is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word that probably everyone in this room knows. That's the word shalom. How many have heard of the word shalom? You hear the word Jerusalem. It's a city of peace, Jerusalem, shalom. What does this peace mean? Well, it's a greeting. But it means a little more than simply a greeting. It means that God's well-being be with you, that God's well-being be with you, that God's blessing be with you. Now, let's think about what has just happened. If you go back to chapter 14, and I think verse 27, Jesus is in the upper room preparing his disciples for his departure, and there in verse 27 he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So he's promising to give them peace. He could be no more than an hour away from being arrested. He's certainly less than 12, probably less than 12 hours of being being crucified. Maybe approximately 12 hours later he will be crucified. But now, when we come to chapter, nine, chapter 20, verse 19, Jesus has been crucified. He has died. He's been buried. He's raised. The peace that he has promised in chapter 14, verse 27, is now given in abundance. And it simply means more than a greeting. Jesus is now able to usher in the kingdom of God with all of its benefits and with all of its peace. A lot of times in our culture, when we think about peace, we think about an absence or an abstinence, if you will, of problems or an absence, if you will, or an absence of anxiety or, okay, a peaceful life is a life that's free of, of, uh, of problems, it's free of uh, heartache, it's free of anxiety, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the peace that's in view here is much richer than that. The peace that's in view here is a peace that finds God actually pouring his blessings down upon all of the recipients of this peace. And let's think about it. What has Jesus done? He has died on the cross to take our sins away, hasn't he? He's died on the cross. And Jesus comes. He comes in and he comes in uh, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But on the cross, what does he accomplish? He accomplishes salvation for us, doesn't he? And now he is bringing in that peace. It's a peace that the Apostle Paul would call a peace that surpasses understanding, isn't it? And it's a peace that hasn't fully been realized in our lives, right? It's a peace that's, in some respects, awaits our future. But it's also a peace that we saw, that we still, nevertheless taste right now, don't we? There's all kinds of things going on in our lives right now. But if you're in Christ Jesus, there is a foundation of peace in the midst of all of it, isn't there? You know, even if it isn't any more than this, Lord, I know that one of these days you're going to take this away. One of these days I'm not going to feel like this. Do you realize what a blessing that is? Because apart from Christ, we can't say that because we don't know that. But if you're in Christ one of these days, regardless of how tore up we are inside over whatever it might be, if we're in Christ Jesus, he is working every day. He is praying day and night for us. He is ushering in his salvation. He is bringing in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you're going to be there. And it's not just going to be a life that's absent of problems. It's going to be a life that's full to the brim of blessings. Do you see what I'm talking about here? If we could think of the worst day that we've ever had here on earth, it's going to be the extreme opposite of that. And I think that one of the reasons that we don't know some of these things that we don't know here is certainly by God's design. I think he wants to give us a few surprises. You know on Friday uh, Dan come down and joined us we did a prayer walk down at the park and and later we had a uh, memorial service it was a great day on Friday down there and there was a woman i think Dan you might have saw it there was a woman that was going through the hallway and I knew she wanted to be at the uh, prayer wa- or the uh, uh, memorial service. She knew about it, she wanted to come, she didn't know if she was going to be able to come, and I was trying to entice her to come, and I said, "Listen, we have a little surprise. I think you heard that. I have a little surprise for you, and I know her well enough to know that she likes surprises. And she says, "Oh, I love surprises." I said, "I know you do. and there's going to be a little surprise for you. What is it? Well, I can't tell you. If I tell you, it's not going to be a surprise." Do you realize that God has surprises for us? And I think that's why some of these verses, it's like I don't think that we should try to take some of these mysterious verses and make dogmatic statements about them. I think what we should say is what's clear in the passage is this is a surprise. There's a lot we don't know about a glorified, resurrected body. There's something I do know about it. If you're in Christ Jesus... You're going to get one. Does that sound exciting? Because especially as you get older, it gets exciting with each passing day, doesn't it? What are you telling me? Um, what are you telling me, Rick? I'm going to get a new body. Mm-hmm. What's it going to be like? First Corinthians 15, you can add that to Acts 8 and, and Luke 24. <laughs> But there's really a lot we don't know about that body. But what I can tell you is we're all going to be satisfied with it. We're all going to be satisfied with it. And it's going to be more than an existence without problems. It's going to be an existence that's rich, full, and chock full of the blessings that God has for us stored up. What do you think of that? And if you're not in Christ Jesus this morning, what are you waiting on? I mean... If you're waiting on a better sermon, I don't have it. This, this, is, this is it. I mean, um, you know, come to the fountain That's all I would say. Someone say, how do I do that? Put your faith and your trust in Jesus. Bring your sin to him. Say, Lord, I can't break free of this without you. I need you to break free from this. Put your faith and trust in him. And start walking with him and following him. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord for this peace there's many things and we haven't even begun to look at some of the other things that are mysterious but father what we do see is that you have brought peace you bring peace to your people and father we recognize that this isn't fully realized in this life but ultimately this is going to await when you usher in your new heavens and a new earth but father we can we can actually realize your peace even now We can begin to taste your peace even now. If it's simply this, we know that whatever's going on in our lives, if we're in you, these problems, these heartaches, these pains, this aging process, it won't last forever. You will soon wipe away every tear from every eye. And we thank you, oh, Father, that that is the case. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.